0: This is the Capital Literature Podcast, bringing you investment letters and audio. The Capital Literature Podcast is a SEBITS capital service for the investment community. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All rights belong to the respective owners. River Oak Capital, 4th Quarter 2020. 2020 Letter to Shareholds. River Oak's book value per share increased by 74.3% in 2020. Our book value on December 31, 2020 was 76.1 million Swedish kronor, equivalent to 267 Swedish kronor and 22 aura per share. When evaluating investment results, it is my strong recommendation that you always look at the longest available period as shorter time periods with their inherent randomness won't tell you much of value. As always, I have included a full track record of the past eight years, which includes the results of my Zen Capital Family Partnership from 2013 to 2016 at the end of this letter. Fellow Shareholder, we were fortunate to do very well in a year that caused so much pain and loss for so many people around the world. Our results in 2020 happened because the companies we were invested in were well prepared to handle unprecedented circumstances, financially, culturally, and in terms of their business model. They all adapted well and executed brilliantly. Our portfolio company's average revenue growth was 36%, and their average operating earnings growth was 48%. Footnote. The earnings growth of one of our portfolio companies was adjusted down from 5,600% growth to 100% growth, as it went from essentially break-even in 2019 to profitability in 2020, rendering its earnings growth number meaningless. The 48% operating earnings growth number is thus a fair bit understated. A new investment we made in late December is excluded from the calculated averages. And a footnote. The second key to our results in 2020 was how we reacted in March. On March 16, 2020, our investments were marked down by almost 12% in a single day. If I had decided to sell all our investments during those scary days in mid-March and waited for things to clear up. Our full year investment returns would have been negative 20% instead of the reported plus 104%. The ever present moderate optimism that permeates River Oak once again proved to be a good attitude to have. Howard Marks at Oak Tree Capital once observed a good builder is able to avoid construction flaws, while a poor builder incorporates construction flaws. When there are no earthquakes, you can't tell the difference. This past year had one of the largest earthquakes imaginable. Construction flaws, such as an over-leveraged balance sheet, a slow-moving bureaucratic culture, or not having embraced the ongoing technology-driven tidal wave, came out in full bloom. They were seen in companies and in how different countries handled the situation, some were agile, alert and quickly able to adapt while others proved bureaucratic, incapable and sleepwalking their way to even the smallest of changes. As usual, the world was not fair. If you were in the airlines, hospitality, or restaurant industries to name a few examples it didn't matter if your construction was flawless you still suffered heavily through no fault of your own as for river oak i am humble about the fact that if covid-19 had instead been an online server virus it is fully possible that our companies would have been the dogs of the year i also recognize that our type of companies fast growing asset light highly scalable market leading technology companies with long runways for continued growth have been in favor lately They were already favored in 2019, for good reason if you ask me, and then the pandemic hit and poured fuel on the fire. The intrinsic business value of our companies has increased a substantial amount in the past few years, their stock prices have in some cases increased even more. The market has in most cases priced in a continuation of these companies' impressive results. In some cases, it will prove correct, while in some it will probably prove optimistic. Predictions about the future Quote. In 2020, we expect a once-in-a-50-years pandemic to hit the world. We expect to have one top-to-bottom drawdown in our portfolio of 30%, and end the year with investment returns of more than 100%. We also expect our asset base to grow by 200%. End of quote. If I would have communicated the following 2020 outlook to you at the end of 2019, most of you would probably have jumped in your car, drove straight to River Oaks' office, and try to get your money out, before giving me a ride to the nearest mental clinic. Yet, this is exactly what happened. Hopefully, you now have more sympathy for my poorly hidden skepticism of laying out detailed predictions about the future with a high degree of confidence. I remember once listening to Charlie Scharf at the time he was CEO of Visa in an earnings call when an analyst asked him about their forward-looking guidance. After all, it seems reasonable to assume that the CEO of Visa has access to more high-quality data about consumer confidence trends etc. than most of us. He gave a great and honest answer. Quote. Yeah, listen. This whole concept of guidance, it's a very strange thing because you're asking us what we think our volumes will be next quarter, the quarter after that and the quarter after that? And we know a little more than you know, not a whole lot more. So, asking people to give precision in terms of what's going to happen effectively to the dollar, consumer confidence, things like that. We really don't know." End of quote. 2020 was a masterclass in futile predictions. I don't believe I have ever heard more unqualified people make predictions with more conviction and based on less information than in the past year. Listening to one interview with an expert and reading a few random articles online does not qualify most people to make any conclusions about anything. As for pandemic experts, one of my friends that runs a very successful investment firm in Toronto and has a lot of resources to do good research told me at the start of the pandemic that they had talked to a lot of infectious disease experts about things such as R0, ways of transmission, and fatality rates, and practically all of them said different things. When the world behaves roughly like it has in the past, it seems that most people can make decent predictions. When something unprecedented happens, which is also when successful predictions are the most valuable, it seems that very few people can. Let's take a moment to salute all those who were diligent, who studied a lot of data, read dozens of studies, tried to form their own opinion through deep analysis, and at the end of it were still humble and confident enough to say the three magic words I don't know. Today, quite similarly to what happened after the 9-11 attacks, many people are extrapolating the recent past and are worried that the next pandemic is imminent, and will arrive in one, five or ten years, when perhaps it is more likely, at least based on history, that the next one shows up in 50 years, or if we prepare ourselves better just like we did with airport security etc. after the 9-11 attacks, a new disease might never be able to wreck as much havoc in the world again. Who knows? I only know what to do when I hear someone confidently predict future events with a high degree of certainty, turn on Spotify. Independence of Thought In March and April, it felt like I was one of the last people in Sweden saying that our pandemic response would produce very bad results in terms of lives lost. Lehman and doctors alike were willing to wager me that our response would prove to be the best one and that our Nordic neighbors would soon catch up to Sweden's high death rates, if not by summer then no later than March 31, 2021. Lately, these then very confident prognosticators, let's call them co-pros, No longer want to evaluate what they said one year ago, but instead casually say that our Nordic neighbors are most likely not relevant comparisons after all. Why am I telling you this? Because many co pros are smart and well educated people. The reason they believed Sweden's response was the best in the world was because one, a few leading Swedish authorities with supposedly relevant experience said so, and two, these authorities had a 70% plus approval rating, and it's always nice to be on the side of the majority. What the co-pros failed to take into account was that these same authorities had been completely wrong on pretty much every important pandemic-related matter they had predicted thus far, such as in late February and early March when they assured the media that we will be able to handle the few isolated cases that come to Sweden, and we should not need to have a continued spread in Sweden unless we are very unlucky in different ways, or a few weeks later when they predicted that the worst would be over as soon as all imported cases from the Italian Alps had died down. As these predictions quickly proved wrong, they made a full 360 and confidently predicted that Sweden would reach herd immunity by May. If you were looking at the actual numbers, study the alert and much humbler responses of our Nordic neighbors and read international news, it was easy to conclude that the confidence exuded by the co-pros was very ill-placed. Today, we all know how it turned out. Nevertheless, it can be very challenging to stand firm against a large majority backed up by leading authorities. To get to my point, at River Oak, I will never make decisions based on how many people agree with me, or the titles of those who disagree with me. Our two new board members, which are introduced in the annual meeting and corporate updates section on page 15, work the same way. We will doggedly pursue important facts, apply intense analysis and reasoning, and we will listen to and discuss with people whose opinions and judgments have proven valuable and correct in the past, regardless of their titles or resumes. One thing I have always loved about investing is that opinions don't matter, screaming the loudest doesn't matter, having fancy titles doesn't matter. Being right matters. Our investments This section is quite extensive this time. If you want to go straight to our annual meeting information and corporate updates, feel free to skip directly to page 14. I usually don't discuss our investments much in these public letters, but this year I think it is useful to discuss them a bit more extensively as it was quite an extraordinary year in which an investment firm's area of focus mattered greatly. I will highlight our first filter that is always applied to all our potential investments, then comment on our actions in the first quarter of 2020, two sales and two new investments, and then there will be a deeper dive on one of the investments we made long before COVID-19 existed which gives a good overview of the themes and types of companies I am looking for on our behalf. Does the company provide value? Successful investment firms are sometimes criticized that the only thing they do is move money around. I view what River Oak does in a completely different light, our job is to allocate capital towards companies that make the world better today and will help make the world better tomorrow. Thus, I'm looking for companies that promote and ride on strong trends that I believe are good for the world, companies that promote harmful addictions such as smoking and gambling, lottery providers, fossil fuel power plants, Etc. are examples of companies that do not make the cut. At River Oak, we have a particularly soft spot for companies that enable entrepreneurship. In most nations, small and medium sized enterprises make up more than 95% of all companies, create more than 50% of all new jobs, often much more, and generate a disproportionately large share of overall economic growth. Before I spend any time studying a new company for potential investment, I always start by asking, 1. Does this company provide value for its customers and their end-users? 2. Would I want my children and my friends to use this company's products? 3. Would I want my children and my friends to work at this company? When the answer is no to any of the above, Count River Oak out. It is not lost on me that many big investment winners especially in Sweden, past and probably future, reside in the gambling industry. Not touching them will potentially hurt our returns over time but it makes me and hopefully all of you feel much better about River Oak. The most common objection I hear to this is that the only thing it will accomplish is that others will be there to take those profits instead. Yes, that is often true, and I am happy to leave those potential profits to other investors. Q1 2020 A single quarter is rarely very eventful at River Oak. The first quarter of 2020 was an exception. Changing one's mind is difficult, particularly under stressful conditions. That is why one of River Oak's main investment objectives is to minimize the likelihood for future problems, which also minimizes the number of times I need to change my mind. In practice, this means that the bar for River Oak's investments is very high on the quality dimension. At the height of battle in March, this provided us with the huge benefit of me not having to make almost any changes to our portfolio. The fewer decisions that need to be made under tough circumstances, such as those prevailing in March of 2020, the better the outcome is likely to be. I did make a few changes, however. As I mentioned in my half year letter, I decided to sell two of our investments in the first quarter due to my concern about COVID 19. These were Fiat Chrysler and Adavinta. To be fair, both were already two of our smaller holdings entering 2020 and, on the way to be sold to make room for other more attractive investments I had in mind. The pandemic however sped up my plans. You could rightfully ask why I held on to our least attractive investments in the first place. The answer is that oftentimes I think our least attractive investments are very attractive too. You can think of our portfolio as the 10 last remaining coconuts on a desert island. A few days later we made two new investments in Cinch and Netflix as I believe they would be able to handle the pandemic well no matter how it turned out, and importantly, be good investments after the pandemic had subsided too. It is important to note that I made both investments not because I saw a huge upside, but because I believe the downside was very well protected based on business quality and the price paid, at a time of great uncertainty. As many smart people have said, take care of your downside and the upside takes care of itself. I always seek to invest in companies where the price we pay, with a very high likelihood, promises a return which compares favorably to all our available alternatives, of which long-term interest rates serve as an absolute baseline rate. Footnote. A smart friend of mine correctly observed that I don't invest in 10-year or 30-year treasuries, so then why do I take them into account? Well, he is right that currently I do not, but if they yielded 6% or 8%, I would. End a footnote. I will however happily trade much of the prospective returns for a greater certainty. While I always strive for the return comparison to be as favorable as possible, it always takes a backseat to my degree of conviction. These two changes worked out very well for us, but it is important to note that their total net contribution to our 2020 returns was tilted to 15%, meaning that without them our full year returns would still have been plus 89%. I would argue that this is quite a strong argument against trying to be smart and feeling a need to act during periods of market upheaval. It is much harder than most people think to come out from them with a net positive. Fiat Chrysler Automobiles was one of our day one investments, and on a personal level, my family has been invested in FCA since early 2014. At that time, Ferrari was part of the FCA car conglomerate, and the whole company was priced at less than 10 billion euros in the market. Since 2004, FCA has been very well managed by its masterful CEO Sergio Marchione. From 2014, when my family initially invested, until Sergio's tragic passing in 2018, FCA's operating earnings increased almost 3 to 7 billion euros, not counting Ferrari which was spun off along the way and today sports a standalone valuation of 50 billion euros all by itself. FCA's reinvestment needs just to stay competitive however are massive and have increased too, so owner earnings excluding Ferrari didn't increase in lockstep with operating earnings over this period. River Oak did not benefit from Sergio's excellent steering Ferrari as the spin-off was done in 2016 a year before River Oak was founded. After Sergio, the new CEO Mike Manley did a stellar job which ended in a merger with Peugeot that was announced in late 2019 and consummated in early 2021 to create the massive, combined unit Stellantis. Scale is great for car companies, Peugeot CEO Carlos Tavares who is now CEO of the combined unit seems to be of the same caliber as Sergio and I believe Stellantis' future is bright. So why did we sell? The complexity of FCA with its hundreds of thousands of employees, its employee unions, its enormous factory footprint, and its many different production lines all over the world, is just orders of magnitude greater than the software and online-based businesses that constitute the vast majority of our portfolio. The latter often have no more than a few hundred or a few thousand employees, a physical footprint that consists of a few offices and servers, and little need for capital investments except a fuel growth which in most cases is covered by internally generated cash flow. To give you a somewhat simplistic but illustrative example, think about if you need to retool an automobile plant to be able to produce cars with electric engines instead of combustion engines. You likely need to halt production for a few weeks or months until you have replaced a lot of machinery, fine-tuned processes, re-educated factory workers, and tested everything thoroughly. Whereas in a software company, When it needs to adopt a completely new framework or software, its developers simply download it, install it and start writing their code with a slightly different syntax. To add insult to injury, the latter often has a stronger moat, scales much better, and has a far longer runway to grow. It is simply not a fair game. Our investment in FCA contributed greatly to our returns in 2017 but was thereafter a drag on our performance in 2018 and 2019. Nonetheless, it provided many useful lessons along the way, the primary one being that over a long enough time frame, a company's business model, its competitive position, the industry in which it operates, and its runway for growth are far more important factors for successful investment than a low price and a world-class management team. Thank you, Sergio, Mike, Chairman John Elkin, all other leaders and all employees at FCA for the years we were allowed to be your business partners. Congratulations to you for pulling of not one but two of the greatest comebacks in automaker history, first with Viet in 2004 and then with Chrysler after the 2008 financial crisis, and best of luck on your Stellantis journey. You are a great inspiration to many. Adavinta Adavinta is a global online classifieds company that operates in 16 countries, attracting billion average monthly visits. Their most dominant marketplaces are in France, Spain, and Brazil. In some markets, their sites are the third most visited trailing only Google and Facebook. For example, more than 40% of France's population visit one of Adavinta's sites every month to find a new job, to buy or sell a home, a car, or other used goods. Our investment in Adavinta originated as a spin off from Sheepstead in 2019 which in turn was made because I was very excited about Sheepstead's French Spanish and Nordic online classifieds assets. Sheepstead also owns some media assets such as newspapers often blotted, SVD and Verdenskang, which I wasn't equally excited about. In the spin-off, the Nordic media assets and Nordic classifieds platforms such as Blocket in Sweden and Finn.no in Norway stayed in Sheepstead, while all other classifieds assets were put into Adavinta to form a global pure online classifieds company. Hence, after the spin-off, Given that most of the exciting assets were now in Atavinta, I exchanged our remaining Sheepstead shares for a larger position in Atavinta. As mentioned, the decision to sell our Adavinta holding in March 2020 was already in the works before COVID. When it hit, the combination of my concern about how France, Spain and Brazil would be able to handle the pandemic, and the many other great investment opportunities that were available in March, sped up my plans to sell. Atavinta managed the year well considering that both their main markets were impacted by severe COVID lockdowns, and they ended the year with total revenue down 2% and earnings down 6%, compared to plus 15% and plus 32% respectively in 2019. After resold, Adavinta acquired eBay's Classifieds division to become one of the largest tech companies in Europe. Overall, our investment in Adavinta contributed a few percent to our results over our quite short holding period. Adavinta is a great company, and I could definitely see us investing in Adavinta again. Cinch Sinch is a global communications company founded and based in Sweden. It was previously called CLX Communications before a name change in early 2019. It has been profitable since its founding in 2008. Cinch provides a platform for sending messages of all kinds all over the world, allowing companies to communicate efficiently with their customers regarding things such as two-factor authentication, password resets, ticket and booking information, etc. Cinch main focus is SMS which is a very effective means of communication. There are more than 5 billion unique active users which compares favorably even to platforms like Facebook, and the open rate of SMS is 35x email. Cinch makes a few sec cents per message sent by its customers. To understand why companies choose Cinch as their communications partner, let's look at one example. Cinch has deals with more than 300 mobile operators all over the world. Sometimes you have a situation where Cinch, or one of its licensed subcontractors, has a long-term exclusivity agreement with say Telenor for SMS messages in the Oslo region, which means that if you want to deliver SMS messages to anyone that has Telenor and lives in Oslo, you have to go through Cinch. The U.S. part of their business is their largest by far in terms of revenue. It is also their fastest-growing part at over 100% growth in 2020. Notably, 8 of the 10 largest U.S. tech companies are Cinch customers. The main reason why these companies choose Cinch is because of their proven ability to reliably handle huge message volumes being sent to a global audience with very few messages lost. In addition, Cinch has proven very adept at acquisitions. Since we invested, Cinch has made three large transformational acquisitions, ACL in India, SAP's messaging division with Global Operations, and most recently Intelliquent, which is the leading voice communications company in the US. Just like Cinch on the messaging side, Intelliquent serves essentially all large high-volume players in the US on the voice side, for example Zoom and Microsoft. I had considered making this investment for a month or so before COVID hit. When it did, it accelerated our timeline as Cinch share price fell by tilde 40% in a matter of weeks. It fell even though almost 95% of its business is in messaging which would be virtually unaffected by the pandemic and I could even see quite a few scenarios in which this part of the business would have a tailwind rather than a headwind due to the pandemic. At the time I believed Cinch would be able to generate one Swedish krona to 1.5 billion in operating earnings in a few years. We invested at an enterprise value of approximately 22 billion Swedish kronor. The aforementioned acquisitions have, of course, increased Cinch earnings power quite substantially since then. Furthermore, they not only verified Cinch's ability to find good deals, but substantially surprised me to the upside. One explanation for their ability to find these good deals is their founding team. Cinch has one of the better corporate management setups I have seen, a very good and recruited CEO an operationally efficient organization, and the founding team, initially six founders, which is scouting for new deals all around the world. I view it as a near certainty that we will see more good deals at cinch in the coming years. Netflix Sometime in March 2020, a friend of mine Asaf Nathan who is co-founder of a successful investment firm in Israel and often very insightful called me and said, what do you think about Netflix now? Churn will be minimal and at the same time the pandemic will postpone their production schedule. As a result, their cash flow should improve drastically. Netflix's annual content production budget is a staggering sum these days, and a mere few months of delay would mean billions of dollars in postponed investments. This insight might seem trivial today but remember this was in mid-March when most investment firms were thinking about survival rather than things like this. I replied that it was a clever insight that I thought he was completely right about it and that I viewed Netflix as one of the absolute safest investments in the world at the time. What about all the competition? He asked me. Netflix is your electricity bill? The others are optional add-ons, I replied. I get these types of calls and messages from fellow investors and friends regularly throughout any year, and I didn't think more about it then. On my way to the office the next day however, I reflected that investments I view as one of the absolute safest in the world, are usually not very exciting and are rarely on my short list for potential investment. With Netflix it was different. It had been on my radar for many years due to the enormous value it offers customers and its remarkable ability to successfully adapt to new consumer trends and launch new business models, always managing to outmaneuver its competition. I believe it now has an essentially impenetrable competitive position. Its service offers one of the largest consumer surpluses, a concept I discussed in more detail here I can think of. In short, consumer surplus is the extra value you get above the price you pay for a product or service. Google's search engine and your washing machine are two of the best examples of a high consumer surplus. In the case of Google, the price you pay is zero. As for the value, think about it as how much would I have to pay you to live without Google? I updated my back-of-the-envelope model of Netflix and ended up making the investment shortly thereafter. So much for checklists. Stone Co. While COVID-19 was a big part of 2020, or rather was 2020, let's take a look at one of our investments that was made before COVID-19 existed. The company, which is called Stone Co., is a great thematic example of the type of companies I look for. In the land that is perhaps best known for fostering soccer superstars Pele, Ronaldo, and Ronaldinho, there are also great companies being built. Stone Co. is a technology company based in Brazil that provides payment solutions and business management software for small and medium-sized businesses, SMBs, to help them sell in-store, online, and through mobile channels. In early 2019, I had studied Brazil as a side project for some time with increasing interest. My interest was piqued for a few reasons. 1. The size of the country, with a population of 210 million, Brazil is the eighth largest economy in the world. 2. Brazil was on its way out of a deep multi year recession with the unemployment rate having recently peaked. 3. The people of Brazil had endured multiple government corruption scandals that were now largely behind them and a new president had just been elected. 4. Finally, and by far the most important factor for River Oaks purposes, I had seen some rather stunning statistics for Brazil which showed a lot of potential for Brazilian tech companies. In terms of Brazil's adult population, only. 70% had a bank account. 60% were internet users. 27% had a credit card. Footnote. Banks are restrictive giving out credit cards to people that have a bad payment record which many Brazilians do. It is also notable that around 30% of all transactions in Brazil are still made in cash. And a footnote. 18% use the internet to pay bills to buy things. 4% make payments using a mobile phone, versus tilde 30% in Western countries, even though 60% of the population are smartphone owners. Brazil's Payments Market Until 2010, Brazil's payments acquiring market was a duopoly. To accept visa payments in Brazil, you needed to go through VisaNet, today named Shello, as the acquirer as they had an exclusivity agreement with Visa in Brazil. ReadCard, today named Reed, the other large acquirer in Brazil at the time, had a similar agreement with MasterCard. Thus, merchants often had to have two point-of-sale, POS, hardware terminals in their stores, one for each network. Furthermore, The POS terminals were not sold but rented so merchants had to pay monthly rent in addition to the very high fees in the 5% to 15% range that they were charged on all transactions. Finally, merchants were paid their balance with a delay of up to 30 days after a sale had been made in their store or restaurant. In 2010, the market was deregulated. It took a few years before other payment solutions were embraced. As late as 2015, incumbents Cello and Reed still handled around 90% of all credit card transactions in Brazil. This is when new companies such as Stone and PogSeguro started to get real traction. Today, thankfully, most acquirers in Brazil accept payments by both Visa and Mastercard. Both incumbent acquirers are owned by larger banks. Cello is owned by Banco de Brazil and Bradesco, while Reed was acquired by Banco Itaú in 2012 shortly after the deregulation. The incumbents were focused on larger merchants, while mostly ignoring SMBs and micro merchants, payment volume of less than $5,000 per month. In many cases, the smaller merchants did not have POS terminals, so this segment of the market was the lowest hanging fruit at the time, and both Stone and Pog Seguro focused here initially. When they started to get traction, Stone in particular turned its focus to the larger, meat sized merchant, which churn less and is more profitable. The opportunity, when Stone and Pog Seguro entered the market, two main pain points existed for Brazilian merchants. 1. Customer service was terrible with call waiting times of two to three hours and poor local service for the POST terminals as the incumbents outsourced much of it. 2. Fees were often high, and in addition they were not disclosed in a transparent way. Stone, which is founded by two serial entrepreneurs, Andre Street and Eduardo Pontes, seized on these pain points. One of Stone's core values is that customers are the sole reason why it exists. Stone measure their customer service success by metrics such as customer service calls rated as excellent by our clients and customer service calls resolved on first call. Both metrics have hovered around 90% with the latter showing a very steady improvement over the past few years reaching 94% at the end of 2020. To give you some flavor of just how obsessive they are about getting the customer experience right, Stone CEO Thiago Fao recently made a point of mentioning that the average waiting time on customer service calls has been improved from 5 to 6 seconds previously to 3 to 4 seconds in January and February. Can you imagine how the merchants that are used to wait 2 to 3 hours in line at one of the legacy banks feel after hanging up with a Stone representative when their call was answered within seconds and their issue was resolved on the first call? They'd probably feel like they just had a conversation with God disguised as a Stone customer service agent. In Brazil, the personal relationship is big. People love to get a real person helping them with their issue. Stone knew the value of this and started setting up local help shops, called Stone Hubs, with teams of 5 to 15 employees that would give personal help to merchants in the local area. When a Reed or Cello POS terminal broke down, a restaurant sometimes had to wait for days and weeks before a replacement came, as the post delivery and the related customer service was often outsourced to third parties. With Stone, someone would come out immediately and a new terminal was in place a few hours later. To address the transparency issue and remove all suspicions Brazilian merchants had built up over years of experiencing bad service, Stone implemented a dashboard which always showed the current merchant rates front and center so there was no way they could be changed without the merchant noticing. Customers love this. One former Stone employee who sometimes helped his potential clients with their Cello equivalent dashboard says it was almost impossible to find the merchant rate there. Another former Stone employee said that the incumbents were in some cases quietly increasing rates until the merchant noticed and started complaining about it, at which point the rate was lowered again. Add to this the fact that Stone's total take rate is below 2%, and it's easy to understand why merchants are jumping ship hand over fist to sign up with Stone. Competition Besides the large banks, other notable companies in Brazil's payments industry include Pogseguro, Mercado Pago, and privately held new Bank. These three companies however focus primarily on consumers and micro-merchants, whereas Stone's focus is primarily on larger and meat-sized merchants. In recent years, Stone has started to offer services to micro-merchants too while PogSeguro has started doing the same to larger merchants so these two entrepreneurial disruptors will likely compete more and more over time. For now, Stone's main competitors are the large banks while PogSeguro's main competitors are Mercado Pago and Bank. Stone's Competitive Advantages One of Stone's competitive advantages, perhaps counterintuitively to some, Is its relatively short life as a company and the fact that it started building its technology platform much later than the incumbents. The incumbents are now likely burdened by old legacy systems, and their owners also have large legacy banking operations. Remember that both incumbent acquirers are owned by large banks, which they have tended to prioritize over developing their other offerings. Stone and PogSeguro, on the other hand, started with a clean slate less than 10 years ago, which enabled them to build a very modern, flexible, and scalable platform from day one. It is notable that this has become a quite common advantage for younger companies in today's rapidly developing technology-powered world. Stone's main competitive advantage is probably its highly motivated workforce with its very customer-centric culture. Stone has many young, smart, and very driven employees. Many employees see their work at Stone as their life's mission. Finally, Stone's founder's entrepreneurial background runs in the company's veins. Stone has a deep understanding of SMB's needs and they are fast and nimble compared to the incumbents. As one telling example, a former REED employee explained that one of Banco Itau's credit card solutions card Pop, uses an American company to process their transactions because if they did it on their own REED platform it would be too slow. To fix this process at REED and make it faster would be a big multi-year project according to this former REED employee. As a result of Stone's speed of execution, While Stone started out mostly focused on POS terminals, it has today developed its offering into a fully-fledged software suite for companies of all sizes. Stone in our Portfolio We made our initial investment in Stone in early 2019 at an enterprise value of around $6 billion. At the time, they had around 270k active merchants on their platform. There are approximately 9 million SMBs and 5 million micro-merchants in Brazil, so Stone's market share was in the low single digits while they were taking 20% to 30% of incremental volume in the industry. It was easy to see that the opportunity for Stone was huge. Since then, active merchants on Stone's platform have tripled, revenue has doubled, and net income has tripled. Due to a combination of a rapidly increasing share price and an almost equally rapid decline in the value of the Brazilian real versus the US dollar over the past two years, I reduced our position in Stone in December at an enterprise value of around $24 billion. Stone has roughly 10% more shares outstanding today than it did in early 2019, so the total return on our sold shares was around plus 240% which works out to plus 95% annualized since our initial investment footnote The Brazilian real declined approximately 30% versus the US dollar over the past 2 years Stone is listed in the United States with US dollars USD being its trading currency its revenue and income however are in Brazilian real BRL all else equal a lower BRL means that the company's earnings power in USD becomes lower and thus its intrinsic value in USD becomes lower as well and a footnote while we rarely sell all our investments are continuously evaluated and compared to our available alternatives. I reduced our position in stone not because I believed cash was a better option, but to invest in a Nordic company that came across my desk in December that I found more attractive at the time. It is worth mentioning here that the degree of difficulty for me investing in a Brazilian company is of course magnitudes greater than in a Nordic one, so if I have two similar opportunities, I will tend to prefer the Nordic option. A small entrepreneurial founder-led company that is obsessive about its customers, has an enormous runway for growth, and whose mission it is to enable and empower entrepreneurship while disrupting large incumbent banks, is about as good as it gets for us in terms of investment candidates, and aligns like a tailor-made glove with River Oak's wider purpose of helping drive positive change in the world. I will not go into any detailed assumptions about Stone's potential future numbers here. Their opportunity was huge in 2019 when we made our initial investment, today, with 770k active merchants on their platform, their market share is still in the single digits, and their opportunity remains huge. From today's enterprise value of around $17 billion, I believe Stone, even if a significant multiple compression were to occur, will return at least 15% per year for us going forward, which roughly translates to a double in five years. As you know, 15% per year is the minimum hurdle rate for our investments as well as our long-term goal. While Stone has a smaller weight in our portfolio today compared to 2019 due to a higher valuation, a much lower Brazilian real, and our other available investment alternatives, I am very excited that River Oak is a shareholder, and I believe Stone's future is as bright as ever. Annual Meeting and Corporate Updates Our annual meeting on Sunday, April 25, will be particularly fun this year. As a first unusual positive, the formal part will be done in advance by postal voting this year in accordance with temporary pandemic laws, so no 30 minutes of yes and no's this year. While the voting might not be very exciting to most of you, the formal part does contain some meaningful items this year which are described below. In the non-formal part, which will be held over video link like last year, I will present River Oak's first quarter results, discuss long-term results, and take questions. If you have a question you want to ask me or any of our board members, new or old, send it by email to our moderator Tillman Farish at tillman.farish at goodinvesting.net no later than April 23, 2021. As a second unusual positive, we will then be joined by Juha Varelias, CEO of QT Group, a Finnish-based software company that I call the Photoshop of Smart Screen Software, for a 30-minute panel discussion about QT and its background. For a video teaser of QT Group and its business applications, click here. Don't miss the chance to hear directly from one of the CEOs of the companies River Oak is invested in. All shareholders and their families are welcome to attend the informal part of the meeting without voting or registering in advance. A link to join the meeting will be sent out to all shareholders the week before the meeting. For the formal voting part, Lars Keilberg at PWC will be proposed to become the company's auditor. River Oak does not fulfill the legal requirements for an auditor to be mandatory, and while I have so far been hesitant to add any non-required costs, I saw many benefits for the company to retain an auditor, primarily in the long term, and the board unanimously supported the suggestion. I have already started working with Lars and have been impressed with his easygoing efficiency. I am delighted to announce that two new board members, Amir Dav and Aramati Alhanko, have been proposed to join our board. Our current board members, Anna R. and Stefan Shu, will not stand for re-election this year. We started very small, and I had no experience of how to run a company that had more than three shareholders. Thus, much of the board's work in the first few years was focused on things such as corporate law, best practices, etc. Today, we are quite a bit larger, the infrastructure we need is in place and our corporate filings are efficiently handled. Our future board work will be much more focused on investing, evaluating deals and general strategic decisions. Amir Dab is the founder and managing partner of Reading Global, an equity fund with a focus on high conviction, long-term investment ideas. Since it was established in 2015, Reading Global's investments have outperformed the fund's benchmark by about 9% per year. Reading Global and its sister fund, Reading Capital, Manage a combined 900 million Swedish kronor on behalf of family offices and high net worth individuals, mostly in Israel. Aramati Alhanko is a senior investment manager at Luxembourg Finance House, where he advises a public equity portfolio of 700 million Swedish kronor and helps evaluate potential private investments. He previously worked at Bank Haviland, where he launched two new equity portfolios in 2018 2019, both handily outperforming the benchmark indices. With his private investments, he has generated an annualized return of 36% over the past five-year period. Aramati holds double MSc degrees, one in engineering and one in finance. Aramati who is born in Finland was also the person that initially alerted me to QT Group which you will hear more about at the annual meeting. Amir is focused globally, while Aramati has a strong focus in the Nordics and a lot of experience in Europe. Both are very passionate about investing in business and have extensive experience of evaluating potential investments. As it happens, both bought their first stock at the age of thirteen. Given the quality and the number of investment opportunities they are regularly exposed to, I believe their expertise on our board will materially increase River Oak's opportunity set. I'm very happy to welcome them both to our board. River Oak is far stronger as a company today because of our departing board members Anna R and Stefan Chu. Anna has been a great sounding board for all kinds of corporate, communications, and other questions I have had over the past four years. She has also been brilliant at getting to the essence of things quickly. Stefan has been a good sounding board not only over the past four years, but also in the year that preceded River Oaks' founding. When lawyers and people in the financial industry were telling me to come back in a few years, think Jamie and Charlie at the JP Morgan meeting in the big short movie. Stefan was one of our day one investors that took time out of his schedule and listened despite my then unfinished plans. Stefan also encouraged me to present River Oak to a small group of people in our first year, which resulted in a handful of new early investors that have been a great addition to our journey so far. Both Anna and Stefan will remain as large shareholders. Please join me at the meeting to thank them because our first leg as a company couldn't have been much better. At the extraordinary general meeting that was held on March 27th, More than 90% of shareholders casted their vote, Barack Obama would be proud, to amend the Articles of Association according to the proposal put forth by the Board of Directors. The amendment means that the company will from now on pay a dividend on the A-shares equivalent to 20% of the company's book value increase each year, a vast majority of this dividend will continuously be reinvested in the company. Given our recent good results, a few years worth of salary costs has now accrued in our books meaning that no salary payouts will affect our book value in the coming three years. In addition, our capital base is now magnitudes larger than our average over the past four years, so the company's fixed costs are now expected to be between 0.1% to half a percent of the capital base in the coming years which is magnitudes lower than previously. These items will have a positive impact on our overall profitability as the company previously allocated 25% of the company's book value increase in a year towards personnel costs and related taxes, and we used to have fixed costs that were materially higher as a percentage of our total assets. The impact will be positive in all years, in unusually good years such as the past two years, the impact will be quite significant, thinking about it over the long-term factoring in the effects of compound interest, it will be even better. Looking Back and Ahead River Oak now has more than 50 shareholders from six different countries and three different continents, only Africa, Antarctica, Asia and South America to go. Four years ago, on January 20, 2017, the new president Donald Trump was sworn in. To many people the world felt like in limbo, and many were worried about the new direction the United States was taking and what that would mean for the world and the capital markets. Less than three weeks later, On February 6, 2017, an unperturbed small investment company was incorporated in Uppsala and made its first investments the following day. Quite a few people were hesitant to invest even parts of their savings then, and many people were too worried about the future to invest anything at all at the time. However, a few brave souls did invest to become River Oaks day one investors. Today, as Trump's presidency ended in dramatic fashion with a historical second impeachment trial in as many years, looking back over the past four years there was no shortage of controversy or global crises, none the least the ongoing pandemic. Some would probably label the past four-year period as the most dramatic, eventful, and uncertain since World War II. Despite all this, over these same four years, River Oaks Day 1 investors have at the time of this writing more than tripled their money, which corresponds to an annualized rate of more than 30%. This has been achieved by investing in well managed companies that provide great value for its customers, have solid business models, strong balance sheets, and a bright future. While our return rate is very unlikely to be maintained, it shows that River Oak's strategy of focusing on the micro and keeping things simple works well almost no matter what is going on in the world at large. We will continue in the same fashion, focusing on great companies and the great people that build them rather than macro events, stock prices, and market sentiments. Our flying start notwithstanding, any continued success we may enjoy will require a humble mindset and an open mind that is prepared to change and adapt to discover new areas of focus for our investments when the world changes. For change it will. Every successful company in the history of the world has constantly had to adapt to new realities. Those companies that didn't are those that most of us don't remember anymore. The best results in most endeavors are achieved by always looking ahead and focusing on the future. Which player is more likely to become better over time, the one that stands in the middle of the field, hands on hips, admiring the scoreboard, or the one that leaves the field not even looking at the scoreboard, fully occupied thinking about the things that can be improved to the next game? For you as a shareholder and me as CEO, this means not being too celebratory over recent good results or being too low over recent poor results, but rather staying even keel, living always in the middle. For now, we are on a good path. To use Alice Schroeder parlance, the snowball is rolling. April 16, 2021 Daniel Glazer, Chief Executive Officer Founding Principles Our basic idea is simple. 1. Make a bet on human progress Human progress is the reason why stock markets have historically produced average annual returns of 6% to 10% over the past 200 years. Two. Invest in companies that are better than average or available at lower prices. The objective here is to add some additional returns on top of the 6% plus returns that the general market has provided and is likely to keep providing investors over time. Goals 1. Don't lose money. We always think about the downside first. 2. Earn an average annual investment return of 15% over time. This will result in an average annual increase in book value per share of tilde 11.5% after taxes and general operating costs. River Oak Capital. Fourth quarter, 2020. Fellow shareholder. River Oak's book value per share increased by 74.3% in 2020. Our book value at December 31, 2020 was 76.1 million Swedish kronor, equivalent to 267 Swedish kronor and 22 aura per share. When evaluating investment results, it is my strong recommendation that you always look at the longest available period as shorter time periods with their inherent randomness won't tell you much of value. As always, I have included a full track record of the past eight years which includes the results of my Zen Capital Family Partnership from 2013 to 2016 at the end of this letter. Comments on our investment operation River Oak had a very good year in 2020. We should all take a moment to really enjoy it because it certainly didn't come easy, while also keeping in mind all those that were less fortunate in a year that most of us were happy to say goodbye to a few days ago. At the same time, it is important to remember that one year in the investment business means essentially nothing. Any future success we may enjoy requires that we remain as humble as ever about the future, have an open and learning mind, and are prepared to change and reevaluate our views when facts warrant it. Our past record will score us no points in 2021 and beyond. In this short results update, I will just briefly mention what I believe were the main reasons for our good results in 2020. Our core values, keeping things simple, a long-term mindset and fundamental business analysis, were key. 1. Keeping things simple is our main guiding principle. It has led to a strong emphasis on business quality in our investments to minimize the number of future decisions I must make. Thus, most of our companies were well-equipped to handle a pandemic, and I believe most other systemic shocks as well, so I made very few changes to our portfolio in the first half of the year. In turbulent times, making as few decisions as possible is always preferable to making many. It has also led to our rather unconventional strategy of investing a large share of our portfolio in a few select companies, which also helped our results. 2. Our long-term mindset and focus on fundamental business analysis as opposed to short-term macro-analysis, led to calm behavior in March and April when the waters were the murkiest. On March 16, our investments were marked down by almost 12% in a single day. If I had sold all our investments during those scary days in mid-March and waited for things to clear up, our full-year investment returns would have been negative 20% instead of the reported plus 104%. As far as I'm concerned, the macro is as unclear today as it was one year ago, five years ago, and ten years ago. Everyone that successfully predicted the past year's macro events, or the past five years, or the past ten years, raise your hand please. For some reason, surprisingly many people keep believing they can predict the macro and the markets, despite massive overwhelming evidence to the contrary. 3. Randomness. The results we had this year don't happen without a fair amount of good fortunes being on our side. Numbers Gymnastics and Capital Raising. In early January, we made an offering of new shares based on our December 31, 2019 book value per share. The capital raised, equal to about 20% of our total capital base at the start of 2020, became available to us and investable on January 22nd, when our performance was already plus 8% for the year. That is, 20% of our starting capital base missed and plus 8% return in January for a negative impact at the portfolio level of 1.6% in January, 20 times 0.08 equals 1.6%. From February to December, our total investment return was plus 87% so the total negative impact to our change in book value per share was tilde 3%, 1.6 times 1.87 equals 3% for the full year. If we would have had all the capital raised available and investable on January 1st, our change in book value per share in 2020 would have been approximately plus 77%. Please note that if our performance in January had instead been negative 8% it would have been the other way around good or poor performance, we want everything we do to always be as fair as possible for everyone involved. Thus, shortly after our January closing, we took action to minimize the risk of this happening again by shortening our capital raise subscription period so that big fluctuations in our book value per share during these periods become much less likely. Due to Swedish regulations, the risk can't be completely eliminated, but it is possible that we will do our capital raises in one day in the future. It is important to note that just as with currency movements, this fluctuation in our book value per share could have gone either way. As you can see in the table notes on page 1, currency movements had a negative impact on our results in 2017 and 2020, and a positive impact in 2018 and 2019. In terms of our overall long term results, both these factors should have a negligible impact. Our next capital raise will be open February 1st to 3rd. In the meantime, stay safe, enjoy the snow and let's all look forward to a year of more social contacts and many happy moments. January 6, 2021 Daniel Glazer, Chief Executive Office.